This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is Tuesday, February 26, 2008. Tomorrow, the 27th, is the birthday of Ralph Nader. Ralph will be 74, 74 big ones. Now, I have been 74 since before last Christmas. So I am his elder, and I feel, I feel that I have a right to scold, oh, Ralph. Ralph, as Shakespeare says, thou shouldst not have been old, ere thou hadst been wise. He's going to run again, oh, but what do I know? Perhaps he's doing the right thing. Ralph Nader is just about the most hard-working public servant in our land. I mean, you know, from the seatbelts to the Environmental Protection Agency and uh, OSHA, everything that the uh, consumer uh, protection folks have done. You remember Raiders, Naders, let's see, decades ago, uh, they hit the front lines and they're still... uh, They're still the people we depend on to promote the general welfare. Uh, I don't think that uh, being the prez is the place to go if you want to help out. But why, oh, why doesn't Nader work for election reform, some proportional representation, you know, all that stuff? Uh, Lonnie Guineer explains it in great detail. Uh... At this stage in the process, you know, third-party politics is a losing game, at least when it comes to the presidential election. We got to do it, you know, state by state, um, grassroots level, that's the way to go. Politics is the art of the possible, as they told me in 1949, when my favorite a history professor used to <laughs> used to sit us in his circle, and he would chortle about Truman and MacArthur. Right? Yes, he would say you have to do what's doable. But Ralph has the right to do any damn thing he likes, and uh, I wish him a very very happy seventy fourth birthday. I'm certainly not one to talk. I. I don't have any, any, uh, cojones. I just give up and go to the movies, escape. 
the Oscars Sunday night. What a trip. The Oscars are the Mount Olympus of our culture, our celebrity-worshipping uh, culture. You know, these gods and demigods, they represent the ancient archetypes. Let's see, the Aphrodites, that would be, uh, you know, from Marilyn Monroe to... The new ones, they were all pregnant. Uh, it was very funny, the uh, MCs, the people kept talking about what they called the baby bump. The women wore very often tight-fitting dresses uh, so they could show off their baby bump. Uh, actually, Kate Blanchett was the most pregnant. Uh, she uh, She won an award earlier uh, at the Independent Spirit Awards a couple days before the Oscars and uh, she had the most beautiful gown just oh awesome uh, I couldn't believe but she had to walk so far they they had her sitting at the very far end and she got up on stage and said I don't think it's fair to make a pregnant woman waddle all this way <laughs> anyway uh, for the um, Oscars. She was dressed up for the role uh, of Queen Elizabeth in Elizabeth the Golden Age. Uh, terrific part. Oh, talk about costumes. Talk about gowns. Uh, but let's see. The best she did was the, uh, the... She was up for supporting actress for the role of Bob Dylan in, in the picture in which five actors give their impersonation, their take, their spin on Bob Dylan. She was the only female Bob Dylan, and of course, she was definitely the best. Uh, I remember, I think, I, I dreaded seeing her imitate Catherine Hepburn um, in the movie about Howard Hughes, you remember, uh, The Aviator, and uh, I was stunned. I thought it was, I thought it was right on, just smack on exactly. She was as close to Kate Hepburn as anybody could get. Uh, she can, I guess, do anything. Uh, what I liked best about the Oscar Sunday night was there wasn't much American stuff going on. Most of the winners were foreigners. How do you like that? Yes, uh, the Brits were all over the place. The Spaniards, uh, Javier Bardem, the the beautiful, beautiful guy, uh, he was there uh, getting his uh, supporting Oscar, supporting actor Oscar. He kissed his mother without any embarrassment. Uh, I think, yes, I, I think I'm in love. He doesn't, um, what is it? He doesn't seem to be typecast in any role. He can do just about anything. Uh, the winner for the uh, leading leading actor was Daniel Day-Lewis, of course. There were uh, lots of Celtic types, up the Irish, up the Irish. Uh, <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis has become a little grand, I think. Uh, his role was as the capitalist catalyst in There Will Be Blood. He, he's very poetic in his acceptance speeches. It seemed to me he was kind of going for the Laurence Olivier effect. Uh, his wife is Rebecca Miller, the daughter of the late great playwright 
Arthur Miller, and uh, that's theatrical royalty, folks. Uh, she was there in these flowing red bows. Uh, she glows with glamour. Uh, I I thought of Arthur Miller's masterpiece, Death of a Salesman. Now, that was the mid-20th century critique of capitalism, and it's a fascinating juxtaposition with There Will Be Blood, which is an altogether different story, but still the theme seems to be about Moloch, the god of materialism. Whether it's the poor little salesman who just can't make it, who has to live on his illusions, or on an oil tycoon who stops at nothing uh, to get what he wants, uh, capitalism seems to be the, what is it, the the imperative of the age, um, economic determinism, folks. Apparently, capitalism drives man's creativity. <laughs> Never mind about woman's creativity, but in the process, it pushes all of us over the edge into self-destruction destroying our children, yes, in a death culture. That's what happens. Sooner or later, we destroy the future, destroy our children. Uh, <laughs> I loved, yes, Ruby Dee's clip was similar, yes, from American Gangster. There's a scene where she looks at her son, uh, Denzel Washington, who is, of course, a criminal capitalist, uh, she tells him that his crimes, his criminality, is going to destroy his family. Uh, his family will reject him. She will reject him. Um, she slaps him around, and uh, Ruby D was in the audience, and she seemed really startled to see the power of her her own work in that scene. She was right to be impressed. Uh, it it was stunning. Uh, now, that's my kind of drama. Yes, come up and snemesis. Um, make people pay for their sins. Yes, Protestant ethic maybe anyway. I think of the the great Godfather films, uh, Francis Ford Coppola's morality plays. He had the same story, you know. Um, remember Diane Keaton uh, destroyed, destroyed by uh, her husband, uh, the godfather in each generation, you know, loses not just uh, his family, he loses his soul. Uh, I guess that's what we used to call magnitude in the theater. Yes, Greek tragedy, you know, you had to be... You had to be uh, uh, out there fighting to save your soul from the devil. Uh, the Cohen brothers, who won the Oscar for Best Picture, they don't seem to be the least bit interested in that kind of drama. They're into nihilism. Uh, their movie is um, uh, No Country for Old Men. Fabulous, fabulous <laughs> picture. I want to read you a little bit about that in a minute. It's uh, it's in the New Yorker of 25 February. It's called Killing Joke. The Coen Brothers Twists and Turns by David Denby under the critics. Uh, 
And what it shows you, yes, is, yes, uh, says, not since Preston Sturges has anyone so uh, beautifully exploited the dramatic possibilities of stupidity. Uh, I guess we aren't big enough anymore to be tragic. Uh, I don't know. There was an old guy who got an honorary Oscar. He was 98 years old. The designer, Robert Boyle. He was helped on stage by a pregnant Nicole Kidman. And he talked about these things, trying to express some of the eternal verities, you know, the timeless truths uh, in theater and real life. He said that while we were living in an age of conflict, the one bright spot were these films, these movies, the art. Uh, art is long, yes, the... The young musician who won for best song, uh, his uh, song is uh, Falling Softly from the the movie Once, uh, made in 30 days for next to no money. Uh, He jumped up and down and hollered, make art, make art. (laughs) Anyway, uh, this old guy, Robert Boyle, he was not mocking our... uh, lost humanity. He wasn't laughing. He was very, very frail. Uh, I was afraid, for a minute there, I was afraid he was going to tip over and have to hold on to the ropes of diamonds that were strung all down the gown of Nicole Kidman. I never saw such a necklace. Unbelievable. Awesome, all that affluence. Uh, He said that... uh, the evolution of the arts, the privilege of watching uh, the cinema for all of his years, that this was the, the good part, the, the great reward of getting old. <laughs> he didn't recommend the other parts, he said. <laughs> the truth of his faith in uh, the light, uh, the light coming, the property of uh, what, well, I guess aesthetics uh, was expressed by the loveliest of the young actresses. She's the girl who won for the role of Edith Piaf. Uh, she, she wasn't Sally Fields exactly, but she, she did go over the top a bit. Uh, her movie is La Vie en Rose, you know, in this very heavily accented English she she cried out that there are some angels in this city. Yes, some angels in L.A. Her name is Marion uh, Cotillard. Uh, she was so transformed in the film, uh, the makeup that they put on her is Edith Piaf, that she is not recognizable uh, when she uh, comes on as herself. I guess a star is born. A whole new generation of young people, yes. And, thank God, uh, Edith Piaf is now available, ready to be discovered, the little sparrow, by uh, a new generation. The immortal Edith Piaf. 
I was amazed by the film, by the verisimilitude, the what seemed to me reality. Of course, I wasn't there in the 1920s, but I certainly felt that I was when I, <laughs> when I saw La Vie en Rose. There is a TV documentary I saw years ago, and I've got the audio tape. Uh, I recommend the uh, TV documentary if you can find it. If anybody out there knows where they can lay hands on it, uh, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, unlike the movie, the documentary showed uh, Edith Piaf's work in the French resistance during World War II. Of course, I know you can't pack everything into a two-hour feature film. It was enough for me just to see this homage to a great artist so unique uh, it's hard to imagine there could be another Edith Piaf. Uh, I had also hoped that the movie would include her marriage. Uh, just a few years before she died, she married a 26-year-old Greek hairdresser, a gentle soul who uh, cared for her until she died. And uh, half of the women in Paris were there at the ceremonies uh, some of her other male friends said they did not think it was very nice that a, a woman her age should do such a thing. <laughs> but the women, the women all understood. Uh, let's see, her young husband's death came quickly, I think, after her own. He had a motorcycle accident, right? I remember that scene to complete the circle of sorrow that surrounded uh, Edith Piaf. Every time I saw her in the documentary, she was laughing. I never heard any woman laugh so much. Once again, if anyone in our listening audience knows how to locate that TV documentary, please write to me here at KPFA. Uh, Jennifer Stone at Box 90. KPFA Radio. We're at 1929 Martin Luther King Jr. Way, Berkeley 94704. Or you can leave me a message on extension 630. Call the station and get extension 630. Uh, that audio tape I play over and over again. I've just about worn it out. It's got Charles Aznavour and uh, Edith Piaf's uh, American husband, Eddie Considine. <laughs> so many others. Uh, they were so, I guess the word is condescending. They said that she was childlike, infantile. Um, uh, I have no doubt, yes. Anyway, that audio tape is a precious historical document. It's all about love and death and sex and war. Ah, they are still with us, although the styles do change. Uh, as I watched the very elegant and witty comedian John Stewart MC the Academy Awards, I was so moved I felt impelled to get out my rhinestone chandelier earrings. Let's hear it for decadence. It's come around again. Yes, we should all get 
we should all get elegant, uh, especially, <laughs> especially when you think about what's coming underneath all that Hollywood tinsel. There's real tinsel. The the philanthropists were busy. They get all kinds of points. The charity parties were everywhere. This is positively Victorian, you know. It's like the 19th century. Uh, there were all kinds of benefits for AIDS. Uh, I thought it was like watching medieval knights and their ladies, uh, the crowd dressing up and parading around like royalty. Daniel Day-Lewis knelt down at the feet of Helen Mirren. Yes, she she was last year's best actress, so she gave him his best actor award. And when he was on his knee, he said, that's the closest he'll ever get to a knighthood. Hint, hint to the palace over there in London. I think that uh, being an Irish upstart, he's he's probably angling for a title. <laughs> After all, he is married to our greatest 20th century playwright, uh, uh, the daughter of our greatest 20th century playwright. Now, some people have told me that I'm wrong about that, that Tennessee Williams is the uh, number one American playwright of the 20th century. I think it's a toss-up. Anyway, the cakes and ale were flowing and the... The parties looked very cheerful. I think it was because the writer's strike had ended and there was something, I don't know what to call it, kind of hysteria. Uh, uh, what do we call that? Fond de secla. Uh, end of an era. I think maybe people are so frightened of what they see coming that uh, their effort to have fun, to amuse themselves, to get the last, last gasp of pleasure. Uh, oh, and just to get dressed up, you know. Uh, uh, John Stewart actually mentioned that uh, the Vanity Fair party had been canceled out of respect for the writers. And then he said, on the other hand, it might have been nice if instead of that they'd had the party and invited some of the writers, yes, they, he said, they they certainly <laughs> they certainly weren't exclusive. He said, don't worry, don't worry, they won't mingle. Personally, uh, I have to confess, I enjoyed I enjoyed the whole thing. I haven't done that for years. As a matter of fact, I've hardly watched it in recent years. I think it's because this year some of the good guys won. Not not all, of course, but uh, a few. And the gowns were what studies in absurdity. Uh, wardrobe malfunctions everywhere. The woman, the woman who wrote the movie Juno, the one about teenage pregnancy, you know, her clothes were falling off. She had this god-awful tattoo. Uh, I couldn't believe it. Uh, the, uh, well, I mustn't make fun of beautiful Jennifer Hudson, but girlfriend, where were your friends? <laughs> she, she made two major errors. Yes, two of them right in front. A white dress. Her, her bosoms came on before. Anyway, poor darling, for me, 
the truly theatrical dress, the most striking, was worn by Tilda Swinton, uh, another Brit, yes. You remember Tilda Swinton in a fabulous movie called Orlando from the book by Virginia Woolf? That's another one of my favorites. I watch it once a year. It's all about the history of uh, the poet in English literature. You know, at one point in the movie, she turns from a man into a woman. (laughs) I guess I'm trying to think which century that was. But she starts out as an Elizabethan poet and goes through the ages. Anyway, Orlando's lovely. She got a Supporting Actress Award for, um, oh, good Lord, I've forgotten the movie. It could have been, well, I've forgotten now. <laughs> she was this lovely, lovely tall reed in this amazing piece of drapery. Her left arm was bare. It's this Grecian effect, you know, like a sculpture. The color and the texture was opulent, a kind of the deepest blue, uh, color, colors of the sea at night under the moon. Uh, is the most beautiful effect I've ever seen on uh, such a thin, thin woman. They always look so, so terribly scrawny and sad. But this one, it, it had a celestial serenity. Of course, the TV pundits jumped right in and sneered, and they said her dress looked like a garbage bag, (laughs) which shows you where my fashion sense is. Oscar Wilde is right. Art serves to reveal the spectator. (laughs) What you, well, let's see. What you see is who you are. That's it, that's it. I remember Marshall McLuhan years ago. Somebody took him to a topless restaurant. Um, and the women, you know, were serving them the food and they had no, no covering over their breasts. And McLuhan looked at them for a long time and he said, Oh, I see. They're wearing us. <laughs> this year, uh, I noticed that there was a a lack of the maudlin moments so familiar at these ceremonies. Uh, There really was a mirror in which we could see ourselves writ large. Uh, I thought to myself, is it possible that Hollywood is maturing, growing up, getting to be artists? It's the 80th year of the Oscars. Maybe it's true that suffering teaches. Maybe some artists are learning from what's going on around them. Of course, suffering also brutalizes human beings. We see everywhere the rise of the sociopath. Most of the movies up for awards were about sociopathic run (laughs) As a matter of fact, they were all so bad that the MC at one point said, this town needs a hug. Anyway, it's all about the souls who are tormented into madness. And, of course, uh, we're surrounded with them. Some of us see these devils, and some of us see the angels. Yes, as she said, there are angels, even in L.A. What is new 
is a capacity to understand that angels and devils can dwell inside one heart, within one soul. They can exist simultaneously in every human being. I wish I had time to read you this article about uh, No Country for Old Men, about the Cohen brothers and their nihilism. Uh, my favorite symbol in that movie is the gun. Javier Bardem, he uses a captive bolt gun, the kind used in killing cattle. Never mind the automatic weapons. We all just need a stun gun. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. This has been Jennifer Stone. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. From the ones who walk in light, light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow. known as the Golden Land is now a land of terror and despair due to more than four decades of a brutal military dictatorship who has undermined the basic human rights of its citizens. Commemorate Human Rights Day with the Burmese American Democratic Alliance on Saturday, March 8th from 6 to 10 p.m. at the Berkeley Unitarian Fellowship Hall, 1924 Cedar and Bonita. The event includes a film screening, traditional Burmese cuisine, live music, and featured guest speaker, Venerable Dr. Ashin Nayaka. Proceeds will benefit Burmese democracy organizations. For more information, call 510-220-1323 or visit www.